If you have a Bible and you want to turn, we're right back to Ephesians 6. I'm going to talk today about the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, and Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So let me ask you, has, was anyone involved in any spiritual warfare this week? Anybody in this room? Let me ask you, did, did the devil leave you alone this week? As we said, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but our enemy, the devil, is relentless, vicious, hateful, and highly intelligent. And to add all to that, he's not happy because he's feeling rejected. Because if you're God's child sitting here today, that means you left him, your former master and ruler and father. Because now God has adopted you. If you're a Christian in here, you have a new father, you have a new nature, and you have a brand new life. And the devil's not happy about that because he's lost one of his children. And he hates you and me because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He hates him. That's why he's called the Antichrist. So he's directing all of his efforts using his vast host of organized wicked spirits to destroy you and your family and this church all of us, individually and collectively, he's out to destroy us. And he's got his schemes, his wiles, and his plans on how to mortally wound us and drag us back into that kingdom of darkness that we were translated out of. That's his goal for all of us in here. And he never gives up on that. And like we said before, we are defenseless against the enemy of our souls in and of ourselves, in our own strength. I have to add that on so everyone doesn't put notes in my box. <laughs> we're defenseless. In our own strength, we're defenseless. As Martin Luther said, and still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We are no match for the devil because he is not flesh and blood. That is not who we're fighting. He is a spirit. And so that is why we read today for the ninth time. This is the ninth message. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and we need to put on the whole armor of God that we can withstand the wiles of the devil. 
So nine times, I would say, if you don't remember anything else, I said, you'll remember that, right? <laughs> we have a tremendous need to understand and to use this armor. I can say it, but I can't make it sink in, but our eternal life is at stake. It's that serious. Paul's making it that serious the way he writes. Just go back and read what he says, right? So today we're going to look at that fifth piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. So when we talked about the breastplate of righteousness, we said there's five vital organs in our body. Any one of those is, is injured or destroyed, you're dead. And we said the breastplate covers four of them. And today, the fifth is protected by this helmet. And what is that? Your brain, your skull, the brain, the mind, right? So back in that day, they, the helmet worn by Roman soldiers, it was made of tough metal. It was either bronze or iron. And it was padded with felt or sponge so they could wear it comfortably. And the only thing that could split through that metal was an axe or a hammer. So an arrow is not going to do it. A sword's not going to do it. It has to be something heavy like an axe or a hammer to split through that. But the skull of a soldier had to be protected. Because obviously, if that gets injured, your brain or your skull, you are incapacitated. And soldiers with unprotected heads, even today, in armies, down through the centuries, unprotected heads, they don't last long in a war. So just like that helmet was a vital piece to a soldier in physical warfare, so is the helmet in our spiritual battle with the devil. But Paul says our helmet is not made out of metal. What's our helmet consist of? Salvation. So it's on our head. And I think what he's talking about with this salvation concerns our thinking, our hopes, and our expectations. So salvation, it's a really broad term. I mean, you could teach probably for a year on everything salvation entails. It's a real broad term in the Bible that covers deliverance from our enemies, preservation from spiritual dangers, and the bestowal of all religious blessings. That's what it covers. The overall idea of it is it's the effect of God's goodness on his people, his salvation. So of course, we've heard this before, that the New Testament teaches us that salvation is past present, and future. So in the past, Ephesians 2.5 tells us, by grace you have been saved. Titus 3 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So in a sense our salvation is in the past tense. We've been justified. We've been forgiven. We have eternal life already. We're not waiting to get it. We have already a new nature. We're not waiting to get a new nature. So in that sense, our salvation is past, but it's also present. The New Testament talks about we are being saved. 2 Corinthians 2 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what about this verse? In Philippians 2.12, you know what he says? We are to work out our own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. And one thing I think we need to remember is it says to work it out. It doesn't say to work for it because salvation is a gift. We don't work for it. And that work it out is a present tense. 
Work out, present tense, your own salvation. It's something that we have to work out. And what are we doing? It's a growth in holiness through obedience. Because before he said that, Paul said this, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So it's through our obedience, he goes on to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So salvation is past, it's present, and it's also future. There's a future aspect to it. So it's going to come to completion. Does anyone in here have a glorified body yet? Some of you might like to think you do, but I don't think so. We don't have our glorified bodies, and we haven't been made into the likeness of Christ, which will happen one day. Because 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. That's a future aspect. That's part of our salvation. It hasn't happened yet. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But I don't think Paul here in Ephesians 6 is talking about putting on salvation, the helmet of salvation, in the sense of getting saved. He's writing to Christians that are already saved. So I don't think that's his point. The Ephesians, they've already experienced salvation. And I think what he's talking about is the main thrust of the devil's attack, our hope of salvation. Because Paul had written to the Thessalonians about this helmet of salvation. And here's what he wrote to them. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. He said, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul told the Thessalonians their helmet was the hope of salvation. And that's what we're dealing with here. Because the devil is going to try to get Christians discouraged, to lose their hope, to give up in their minds, to be depressed. And he wants us to throw off that helmet. The hope or the expectation is what that word means, the expectation of our salvation. And if he can get you to do that, to take off that expectation of the salvation God's going to give you, he can give you that mortal wound and you're done. That's it. We've got to maintain that expectation. So he's busy scheming and planning attacks on our minds, telling us none of this is for you. It doesn't work for you. And when you start thinking that way, it's for everybody else but me. Guess what happens? You start to lose your hope. You get discouraged. You get depressed. And you're tempted to give up your hope and salvation. Well, listen, the world has no hope. We had no hope. Anyone in here, no one had a hope. And if you're in here and you're not saved, you have no hope. Not a certain hope. Not a biblical hope. Your future is bleak. You need to think about that. You're in here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know who that all is, but you need to think about you have no expectation for the future. So the world's hope is like the little boy who said, hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. That's the way the world's hope is. You know, I hope I'm going to get a million dollars. They'll say things like that. That's not biblical hope. Or, you know, I hope I make it to the NBA. Or in my case, I hope I'll get more hair. It ain't going to happen. Right? So the world's hope is just this mostly wishing something will turn out right. There's no certainty. We're there in Ephesians 6. Just turn back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 11. 
Paul tells us here in Ephesians 2.11, remember something. Wherefore, remember, he says, Ephesians 2.11, that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Look what he says in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. And what does he say there? Having no hope. That was all of us when we were sinners before we know the Lord Jesus Christ. No expectation, no hope at all. I was afraid to die. I was, because I knew where I was headed. I had no hope. Scared to death to die before I became a Christian. And hope's what you have to have. Viktor Frankl, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he argues this, that a loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on man. And it will have a deadly effect on our Christianity. And he said that because he was in the Nazi concentration camps, and he's observing these people. And when they lost hope, he said this, when a man no longer possesses a motive for living, no future to look forward to, he curls up in a corner and dies. And when we lose that expectation of God's salvation in our life, when a person loses that, that's what happens to them. They'll curl up and die. And that's why we have to keep this helmet on. But listen, as Christians in here, we have hope, do we not? The expectation of experience, the salvation of God in this present life, but also the expectation of the fullness of that that's coming in the future. We'll talk about both of those today. It's critical to our eternal destiny that we have a strong, certain expectation that is grounded in faith. Faith is what gives rise to that expectation. You can't confuse the two. But faith produces expectation, that certainty, that hope, not wishing. It's a certainty that something's going to happen. And Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 24. I'm saying we have to have it. We can't cast it off. He says in Romans 8, 24, for we are saved by hope. So we have to trust and have an expectation of the goodness of God to be saved. We have to trust that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the glory of the resurrected body and life in God's kingdom, that is the hope that will enable people and sustain them in suffering. This isn't the end. I may be suffering now through a lot of different ways. A physical trial, a financial trial, persecution, and persecution is going to get worse in this end. And we have to know, I can take all this, that the sufferings I'm going through now are not worthy compared to this hope I have. God has given me this hope. And we have to have that by faith because it's nothing we can see, is it? Because he says, hope that is seen, it's not hope. But we have to have that certainty, that expectation. So if you would, turn to Hebrews 6. So the book of Hebrews was written to encourage these Jewish Christians not to give up their hope in the salvation through Jesus Christ because they were tempted to turn away from Christ. And in chapter 6, Beginning in verse 4, he tells them that if you've tasted of the heavenly gift, 
you've tasted of the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, you've experienced that power, you've experienced that anointing, you've tasted of the Word of God, and you fall away from that, you turn your back on that, say, I don't want any more to do with that. He says it's impossible to renew you again unto repentance. But look what he says in verse 9. He's writing that as a warning, but he says there in verse 9, But beloved, we're persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And look what he says in verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of what? Having that full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants them to continue. They need to have this full assurance of hope. And they have to follow those that have gone before them, their faith and patience. He goes on to explain this hope is like the horns of the altar. Do you know back in Israel in that day, if you accidentally killed somebody, you didn't mean to do it. But for whatever reason, you accidentally killed them and their families after you, that they had designated places all throughout Israel and you could flee to that place. And they had an altar there. You go in there and you grab hold of the horns of the altar. And as long as you were holding on to those horns, they couldn't do anything to you. You were safe. You were secure. And he's saying, that's what they need to do. He's telling them, grab hold of those horns of that altar of that hope that God has given you and don't let go. Amen. Don't let anybody take you away from that. So the devil's in here tonight telling you today that you're not saved. How can you be sure you're saved? All that. And he's hassling you about that. He'll do that till the day you die. Are you sure this is all true? Are you sure you're safe? He's saying, grab hold of those horns and don't let go. Don't let him pull you off of that. That's what he's telling them there. Because look down in verse 18. That's what it says. There's two immutable things. 618. In which it is impossible for God to lie. Has he told you that if you have Christ, you have everlasting life? He can't lie. It's impossible. He says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's that image of grabbing hold of those horns of the altar. That is our hope. And you've got to grab hold of that and not let go. Press on. And he goes on to describe, look what he says here in verse 19. He says, which hope? We're talking about the hope of our salvation. That hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It's both sure and steadfast, which entered in within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying that hope you've got hold of there, that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who's entered in before you, it's like an anchor. It's like an anchor in a troubled sea. And that's what this world is like right now. It is a troubled sea, is it not? The economy's bad, terrorists on the news all the time, sickness, people addicted to drugs and dying. Pornography is rampant, and I would say people just act crazy in general. They are just crazy. And he's saying you need an anchor in that hope, that expectation that God is our salvation. He's watching out for us. That's an anchor. It's sure, he says. It's sure. It's steadfast. 
And that means it is stable. It's reliable. God's word, his salvation. We won't be disappointed when everything's going crazy around us. We need to hold on to that. So he's telling these people, don't give up your faith in Jesus Christ. Your hope in the salvation of Jesus Christ is something you can hold on to as a safe refuge. It's an anchor for your soul. It's what he's promised. It's a sure and steadfast promise. It's an anchor in these troubled times. Young people, young people want security and stability. It's right there in the word. It's right there in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep our hope in him. We need to keep expecting good from God. He is faithful to his promises. Is he not? It's an anchor. So turn over to chapter 10 of Hebrews, just a few chapters over, and look in verse 23. So we've actually sang this as a song. Verse 23, 10, 23, the writer says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now anybody that has anything other than a King James, you probably have the word translated properly. Because it doesn't say, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. That word is elpis. It's the Greek word for hope. The same word is hope of our salvation. So he is saying, let us hold fast the profession of our hope, our expectation without wavering. Why? For he is faithful that promised. Say, don't give up your expectation because God is faithful. We hear that here all the time, don't we? God is faithful because these Jewish Christians here, they are having a very hard time. Their relatives are turning on them. The other Jews are turning on them because they have left the faith, the Jewish faith, and they're embracing Christianity and they're being persecuted hard. And it's like they're struggling with this. They're getting discouraged about it. Look over in verses 32 and 34. Here's what's happened. In trying to encourage them, Paul says, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were eliminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. So when they got saved, they really got it. Verse 33, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves Here's what they knew, this expectation. You have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So he's saying they were suffering reproaches, afflictions. They're made a gazing stock, and they've had all their property and finances taken away from them. He said, you've already endured that. You endured that because you had that expectation that in heaven they can take everything I have here on earth, but they can't take my heavenly reward. I've got there an enduring substance that this world can't touch. And he's telling them, don't give up on that. Saying you have a great reward. Verse 35, he says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great, mega is the Greek word, mega, which has great recompense of reward. You'll be giving up on that. Don't give that up. That's what he would tell us, no matter how bad it is in here. If you've laid hold of that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't give it up, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how discouraged you are. And Peter wrote the same thing in 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there, but here's what he told those Christians. They're also going through hard times and trials and persecutions. 
First Peter 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. When you're born again, you get a living hope should be birthed inside all of us and a living expectation by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's what it is, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's saying there's an inheritance. You should have this living expectation. There's this inheritance, not like the one I supposedly told you about the other day with my uncle. You know what they did with that inheritance? They just split it up. The lawyer got like 90% of it, and by the time it's all correct, you're left with just little pittance. It's like, <laughs> I don't even need that. He said, oh, no, they can't do that to your inheritance in heaven. It's reserved. It's incorruptible. Nobody can mess with it. And that's the expectation you have. And he says, hang on to that, Peter says. That's that living hope you have, that salvation that is going to be revealed in the last day. It's an expectation of a future reward. And he goes on to say, that way you can endure those trials, those fiery trials. That's how we can do it. Because hope has eyes. It can see what the future holds and not what it's wishing it to be. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, hope sees a crown in reserve, mansions in readiness, and Jesus himself preparing a place for us. And by this rapturous sight, she sustains the soul under the sorrows of the hour. And Spurgeon's saying, faith can see something out there that it's got. It sees this heavenly home, the Lord Jesus Christ, making it ready for you. And he's saying when it sees that, it can sustain us in our present trials and suffering. So listen, that whole thing, you know what? It doesn't get much of a response in America. You know why? Because we all like our homes. Our homes are like really nice. So talking about some heavenly mansion, you're like, I don't mind the one I'm living in. It just doesn't mean as much. But I'll tell you what, those Jews back then, they were poor people. A lot of people in these third world countries, they're poor people. And when you talk to them about there is a heavenly mansion, uncorruptible, streets of gold, hey, that means something to them, yeah. right? right? And I think it'll mean something more to us as life moves on. That great expectation of hope. But look in verses 36 to 39. He goes on to tell them, you're not only going to be given up a great reward, but you're going to be drawn back into perdition. Look what he says. He says, for you have need of endurance that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Verse 38, but the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, which is what they were tempted to do, my soul, God says, shall have no pleasure in him. And the writer says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition or destruction but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So you can't give up that hope or that faith because what do you have left? He said, you give that up, you're not only giving up this inheritance that's there waiting for you, why would you do that? But he says, not only that, to give that up in this hope and expectation of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're headed right back in to perdition, to hell, to destruction. That's what he's telling them there. 
because the just will live how? By faith, by their faithfulness to God. We've got to live a life of trusting in God, don't we? And that life is going to have a hope or an expectation of his faithfulness to us, right? It's the only way we can please God. Because it says without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must do two things. You've got to believe that he is, that he is almighty God. He can do what he says. That's one thing. But you also have to believe something else, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, you've got to believe that he'll do it for me, for you. That's part of it. That's part of faith. It's not just believing, oh, God is great. God is good. He can do anything. Well, we know that. He's able. But part of the faith he's talking about that pleases God is you say, God, you're willing to do it for me. You can't leave that out. As I seek you, you will reward me. You guys, part of trusting him. And he wants to do that for us, and he will. So our expectation of future reward, that's the hope, the expectation to sustain us in persecution, hard times, chaos, and trials. And we need to remember that as we go forward in these last days. We really do. We've got to keep that helmet of salvation, that hope of salvation firmly on our head when everything around us starts to go crazy because who knows what's going to happen with this next presidential election or whatever. So you hear about all this stuff, it has yet to happen, but one day the raindrop will fall. It will happen. Because how God could not judge this nation, as they've said for years and years, like they said, he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It is going to happen. I don't know the when. It could be next week. It could be 10 years from now. I don't know. We've had a lot of people making it seem like it's like going to happen. It could happen any day. It might be down the road, but it's coming and this hope, this expectation of salvation is what will get us through that. That is what we need. So we have to maintain our hope, no matter what we're going through, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And that way, when trials and tribulations come, we will glory in them. You say, what? Glory in them. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5. He said this, knowing that tribulation works endurance, and endurance experience, and experience works what? Hope. And hope will not disappoint, he says. So you, as you endure trials, you gain experience. What experience? As you hold on to God in the trial and see it through and don't give up on it, Right? What are you going to experience? God's faithfulness. Just say, man, I know this wasn't easy. I was barely able to hold on. I didn't feel like Mr. Man of Faith and Power. I felt like totally weak. But at tribulation that came away, I gained an experience that through all that, God is faithful. He came and helped me out. I know that God is faithful. He delivered me. Things looked impossible. Now I've got that experience under my belt. And you know what that does? That produces the next time that trial comes that you're in, hope, an expectation that I saw God do that for me back then. I didn't know. I was like, please, God, help me. I'm trusting you. But I saw him come through. And that creates this hope, this expectation. He did it then. He'll do it again. 
So that's what he's talking about, this hope. And he says, that hope that you gain through enduring through trials and holding on to the Lord, that is what will give you hope, and hope will not disappoint. Because it's by that hope, he goes on to say, that we are saved. And that's why we glory in trials. We don't glory in the fact we're in pain. We don't glory in the fact that we're being approached. That's not pleasant. That's not what he's talking about. We glory in the fact that God is allowing this to happen so that he can do a work in us and produce this expectation that will just keep growing and growing that God is my salvation. He'll not let me down. And that's what he's saying. Now, I don't think that helmet of hope of salvation is always speaking about what we're talking about, the future salvation. Freedom from sin, a glorified body, rewards, and the new heaven and the new earth. Though I think that is a big part of it. But I don't think that's all of what he means by that here. I think he's also talking about the expectation and hope that we need to have in our present experience of God's salvation in our daily lives now. I think we need that helmet. That God will deliver us now from all kinds of spirits. If we're being afflicted by him, heal us, protect us, save us from our sins. Not just in the eternal state, not in the millennium, but now we need to have that hope. Because that hope of salvation, that expectation of present salvation and deliverance, that is the armor that will help us against doubt and worry and discouragement. When you have these lingering trials and seemingly unanswered prayers, you need to have on that helmet of salvation because that's the way the devil will attack our minds. We're talking about the helmet covers your mind, and he seeks to get us to give up our faith. Look at this lingering symptom. Look at this unanswered prayer been going on for a long time. And we need to have a present hope or expectation of God's salvation for today. So you've prayed. And no change seems to take place. And it's going on for a long time. And discouragement begins to set in. You're still battling symptoms, a wayward child, financial troubles, depression, loneliness, this recurring sin or confusion about God's will. Don't know what to do. And you start to lose hope or expectation and an answer is going to come. You start to lose heart. And the devil tells you it works for everybody else. Everybody else has faith but you. No help's going to come. And you know, David had to deal with that. He had to deal with discouragement. And what is his answer? Hope in God. That was his answer. So turn to Psalm 42, if you would, please. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 3, David writes, My tears have been my meat, my food, day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? And when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept holy day. And look at verse 5. He says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And David is saying, I was so upset with my circumstances that I couldn't even eat. Ever been that upset about something going on in your life? So upset you can't even eat. He said tears were his food. And the devil is taunting him through others and saying, where is your God? 
Where is this God you talk about? Has this ever happened to you? Your circumstances seem to just taunt you? And sometimes it could actually even be brothers and sisters in here. God forbid. You need to do something about that. Where is your God? Or other people. It could be your relatives. Where is your God? You've been waiting a long time. No relief. Maybe he's cast you off. And David had to do what? He had to talk to himself, didn't he? Had to talk to his soul. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? Why are you disquieted in me? Telling himself, is my situation really that hopeless? Can God not intervene for me like he has in the past? And he had for David. So he tells himself, oh, no. Don't let that overwhelm you, soul. Don't get disquieted. What was his answer to himself? Hope thou in God. You can't give that up. And that is based on his faith. You know why? Because look what he goes on to say in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, he says, For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, of his face towards me, he's saying. He's saying, oh, yeah, I'll hope in God. This situation is going to change. I will yet praise him. That's his faith speaking. God will come and help me. So let me ask you this. Do you all, do we know what the name Jesus means? Do you know what the name Jesus means? God is my salvation. That's our Lord and Savior. His name means God is our salvation. My salvation. That's the one that promises to never leave you. Jesus. God is my salvation. It's the Old Testament name of God. The God that wrought deliverance for the children of Israel. Tell me that he is still not mighty to wrought deliverance for us today. Our Lord Jesus Christ, God is my salvation. Isaiah wrote this, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. We used to sing that song here. He will come and save you. Fear not. Behold, your God will come. So I would say, are you fearful as your trial lingered? A long time. What does Isaiah say? Behold, God will come. He will come and save you. And Isaiah went on to write, this is in Isaiah 35, if you want to look it up later. He went on to write, this is the salvation that God will bring. He goes on to write, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. And you know what? None of that was happening at the time he prophesied that. Because that's why he had to encourage him. The needs were still there. The blind men were begging. The deaf weren't hearing a thing. And the lame are just lying in the streets. It looks like nothing was going to happen. And so God told them through Isaiah, say to them that are of a fearful heart, the ones that thought God would never deliver them, the ones that thought we'll never receive help. He says, say to them of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. Amen. That's his word. Behold, he says, look at something. Have those eyes of expectation. Have the eyes of hope. Your God will come with a vengeance. He will come and save you. Expect his salvation. He will come. That's still the word to us today. So let me ask you something. How are we going to get that kind of hope and expectation? Us today. How is that going to happen? This living hope we talked about in 1 Peter. 
How are we going to fight the devil's discouragement and depression when trials linger and we think God's not going to come to our aid? You know what I think? I think we need to meditate. We're talking about a helmet of salvation. It's covering your mind. I think we need to meditate not only on the times when God has been faithful to us, but what does it say? The word faith comes by what? Hearing the word, meditating on the word. Think about the time God brought salvation to Israel when things seemed hopeless. Countless accounts in the Old Testament. So we're supposed to love God with our mind, aren't we? Heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I think part of that means we need to take the time to meditate on the scripture and meditate on his faithfulness. Meditate on these stories, not just read your little Bible reading, think about a few promises. No, you need to think about what's going on in these events. Here is how God is faithful and think about it. Especially if you're in the midst of a trial, especially if you're overcoming the fact that you've got prayers that are unanswered, lingering symptoms, and you're starting to get discouraged. That's when you need to forget about your symptoms as best you can and start meditating on the Word of God. The great salvation. How about the great salvation God brought Israel at the Red Sea? They're cornered. We know the story. Pharaoh's behind them, the Red Sea before them, and they had no hope. The people are crying out. Things looked hopeless. you got to picture that. What's going on here? This has really happened. There's mighty armies behind them that they will wipe them out. And the seas before them, they can't get through that. God, why have you brought us here? This hopeless situation. you got to picture that. And that's when God moved in. And so we're talking about the hope of salvation. What was the word that he gave Moses to give Israel? Here was the word. Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. So we're talking about the hope of salvation. They're looking at a hopeless situation. He says, fear ye not, stand still, and you will see what? The salvation of the Lord. That's what he was going to show them, his salvation. And that's what we're talking about, the helmet of salvation. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, he could have said. Because the salvation of the Lord was their deliverance. And just like with them, that is our hope, our helmet. And so what was Israel's song? They see these dead bodies strewn out on the land. What was the song they sang? We sing it here. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has he thrown in the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And you know what else? And he is become my salvation, is what they sang. They're saying, we looked hopeless, but God delivered us. These dead bodies show that, and he is our salvation, our deliverer. He has become my salvation. He is my God, they sang, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. They sang, he is my salvation. He is my God. Hold on in your trials. You'll see that same deliverance when things look hopeless. And you'll be able to sing with them. He is my salvation. He is my God, the one I can trust. Or what about Hannah? We talked about this a while back. No children. She was barren. And you know what it says? We're talking about lingering trials. If you read the account in 1 Samuel, year after year, Year after year, it says, she went to the house of the Lord to be taunted by Paniah, her adversary. Talk about a long trial, year after year. Seemed like it would never end. 
Kind of like some of the trials we have here, year after year, and no change. And it says this about Hannah. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. She was having to overcome discouragement. She wept sore. It was about all she could take. She was a broken woman. But you know what? She still had faith or hope in God. That expectation. She had not taken her helmet off. It might have been sideways on her head, but she had not taken it off because she prayed and God heard her prayer. And her prayer was bathed in tears. And maybe that's the way your prayers are in here today. It's been a long time, Lord, something I've been waiting on, and your prayers are bathed in tears. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. And Hannah must have hoped in God. You know why? Because she gave birth to Samuel. And after she gave birth to Samuel and brought him up there and dedicated him to the Lord, this was her prayer. Listen to what she prayed. I love this prayer. She said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. She saw the salvation of God. Brought her that baby and it looked dark, but she kept her helmet on and rejoiced in God's salvation. And what about Jonah? You say, what about Jonah? <laughs> He's running from the Lord in disobedience. And maybe that's how you're losing your hope. Jonah was in sin. And where did he end up because of his sin? The Bible says in the belly of a great fish. And you know what Jonah called it? He called it the belly of hell. That's what it was like for him. And when he was in that belly, you read Jonah 2, it says, he said this, I am cast out of thy sight. You think he wasn't struggling with hope? Ever felt that way? Cast out of God's sight, it seems that way. Have you ever been in the belly of hell, spiritually speaking? And Jonah was in a battle, and everything was dark. And I would say, just like Hannah, though, he hadn't cast off his helmet of hope. He might have been struggling with it. The devil was tugging on it, but he kept it on. You know why? Because he said this in the midst of all that, after he said he was in the belly of hell and I am cast out of thy sight, he said this. He said, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. He had a little hope left. He never cast off his hope. And he prayed. And it said God heard him. And he said this. And this is something we need to remember. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And what did he mean by that? They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. What were the lying vanities? They were his circumstances. They were telling him that God had forsaken him, that God had cast him off, that all hope were gone. Those were the lying vanities. And it'd say, they that observe that, they will forsake their own mercy. You can't believe those lies. They're telling him to give up. Why fight, Jonah? They're telling him, hey, you've sinned away the day of grace. Look what God has done to you. You're going to get dissolved by the juices in the belly of this fish. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And so what is your lying vanity? An unanswered prayer, lingering symptoms, besetting sin that's gotten to the point you're like, man, I just keep falling into this sin. I'm ready to quit. It's too hard. A spirit of depression. Maybe that, that you just can't shake. 
Maybe that you think you have no friends, no one cares. He that observes lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And Jonah refused to look at those lying vanities, right? And his hope in God's mercy rose above it all. And he had to repent. We know we repent because he said, I will pay my vows. And we know when he came out of that belly, what's the first thing he did? He went to Nineveh that he said he wouldn't have done. That was his disobedience. This doesn't work for you if you're living in sin. But when you repent, your hope is back. He vowed to obey God's command. And when his heart was right, then before he was out of that fish, he began to praise God. He says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. And then Jonah expressed his hope. You know what he said? Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. Hadn't given that up. We're talking about our hope of salvation. Jonah said that while he was still in the belly of that fish. He had this expectation that God would still deliver him. How would you think that when you're in that fish like that? But that's his faith. That's what expectation will do. Salvation is of the Lord. He will come and save me. He said, God is able and willing to help me out. He knew who his God was. He acknowledged that. And the next thing you read, if you read Jonah 2, is the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Because he didn't give up that hope. So we sing the song here, Isaiah 12. Love this song. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Yahweh is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So I would say, what does it keep saying? Behold God. Is your back up against the wall? Then lift up your eyes. Look at something. Behold God. God is our salvation. Deliverance. He'll make you whole. That's what that word means. All of that. His goodness, spiritually and physically. That's what his salvation entails. So you're struggling with hope in here today, and if you're a Christian, guess who lives in you? Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in us. One whose name is God is my salvation. And that should encourage you to have hope in your trial. Because if you have Christ, you have the living hope right inside of you. Christ in us, the hope of glory, that certain expectation of answered prayer, help of deliverance in any circumstance. The glory of God lives in me and you, that hope of glory. We should never be without expectation or hope. And when that's the case, when we understand and realize that and think about that, then we can sing like David. It says this, and David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, here was his song, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior that saveth me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Ever heard that before? And he goes on to say later in that song that we sing, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. 
That's the song we sing. I love that part. The Lord lives. We serve a living God. One that can come. He's alive. He can come and bring us that salvation. We can have an expectation that will happen. Not a hope that we wish it will happen, but an expectation that He is our rock. He is my God, my rock, my salvation. Amen? Amen. That really is what we can do. And David, it said he wrote that when he looked back, how God delivered him from Saul, and it says, and all of his enemies. And look at the life that he had. That expectation, it starts with the lion and the bear, moves on to Goliath. Impossible situation. And that's where these trials produce this experience that produces this expectation in him. And he carries out on over to Saul. Talk about a lingering trial. He was years out there in that wilderness. Saul was relentlessly after him, just like the devil is relentlessly after us. And what kept David going in that wilderness experience? That helmet of salvation he wore, that expectation that God is my salvation. He is my rock. That's where he's composing these psalms to know God's deliverance. And can we let that be our song today? The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. I'll just say this in closing. Let us just firmly place on our heads our helmet. The hope and expectation of God's salvation. Amen? Amen. That's what we'll do. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are our God, our rock, the God of our salvation, and that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to us, that he is our Lord, our God, the God of our salvation. It's in his name, and he lives in us. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll cause all of us to meditate on the faithfulness of your word, and the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will grant you deliverance and salvation. That is the hope that we need to hold on to, that firmly grasp those horns of the altar, Lord, that horn of hope and expectation of God's faithfulness. We won't let go of that. And I just thank you that you'll put that in all of our hearts in here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.